Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt and I'm here in Oxford, but on my screen is the lovely face of Octavia Bright in London. She has a very high pony today and I'm loving it. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Well, me and my high pony are having fun with uh, the headset. I've also got on pretending to be an air traffic controller from the 1960s. It's great. It's a whole look and I'm loving it. (laughs) I feel very powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've also got my sad lamp on. And so I'm I'm kind of bathed in this like pretty extraterrestrial seeming light. I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. I'm bored of lockdown and I want to go on holiday. But apart from that, I'm all right. (laughs) How about you? To be honest, I'm finding the second lockdown pretty tough. It is tough. (laughs) I'm just hitting a wall this week. I can't believe it's only been two weeks. It feels like it's been like 17 weeks. I did not realize how much weather and daylight made a difference in the first lockdown. And the darkness is just destroying my soul a little. It's heavy, man. It's really heavy. But I'm coping. And I have to say that recording with you is always such a bright spot. And I'm not just saying that. No, it's Um, the same for me. It really is. It's like, it's it's wonderful to have time that we know we're going to have like an interesting conversation. Yeah. And we always end up talking for way too long, both before and after the recording, (laughs) which I think is a good sign, isn't it? Yeah. Like for hours sometimes, um, just on our little mics. So anyway, it's, that's been lovely. We had a very long session the other night for a number of reasons and we were both so cranky and tired and hungry, really hungry because it was over dinner and somehow it was still kind of wonderful. Yeah, um, it was really fun. Despite it all. So yeah, I'm feeling good about that. Also, um, I think at this point, it's time to say thank you to Eddie and John for making us dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, not just that one night, but um, yeah. on many, many nights. On many nights. Yeah. On to the show. We're thrilled that we'll be welcoming the writer, Oteka Uagba, on Literary Friction today. We'll be talking to her about her essay, Whites, which examines her feelings in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the failure of white allyship. It's an incredible, powerful comment on race in our society, and it's been published as a beautiful little book this month. So in honor of Whites, the wider theme of our show today is the political essay. Do words have the power to change things? How do you make a good argument in writing? Does the form of the essay lend itself particularly well to politics? Picking up from our discussion of the form of the essay with Brian Dillon in 2017, I can't believe that was 2017. Me neither. Feels like yesterday, yeah. but anyway, boring point to make, but true. Time means nothing to me anymore. <laughs> Welcome to my world, <laughs> Carrie Blit. We will be asking these questions and talking about our favorite political essayists from George Orwell to James Baldwin to Rebecca Solnit. But first, Octavia, can you introduce Otega? I sure can. Otega Uwagba is the author of the Sunday Times bestselling career guide, Little Black Book, A Toolkit for Working Women, that was published in 2017. In 2018, she was selected for the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in media and marketing. She is the co-founder of Women Who, a London-based platform aimed at creative women. And she also had a podcast and show on NTS for a while. So she's coming back into the family for this little show. And her memoir, We Need to Talk About Money, will be published in May 2021. So today you'll hear our interview with Otega. We'll talk more generally about the power of the essay to make points and change minds. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So stay with us on Literary Friction. No pun this time. No, well, I was like, what is funny about politics? Girl, the dark has really got to you. It's <laughs> really got to you. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Otega, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. We've asked you to start with a reading from White, so would you mind setting that up for us? Sure. So... The section that I'm going to read is actually the very beginning of the essay. It's in the first thing that I wrote and and the section that I sort of ended up sending to my publisher as the pitch. So here we go. I still haven't watched George Floyd die. I've seen stills from that video embedded into news articles. And when I'm scrolling through social media, I'll occasionally stumble across a few seconds of his ordeal if a video clip unexpectedly begins to autoplay but I haven't watched the video that so many found themselves watching at the start of this summer. 
I haven't watched a grown man undone by the knowledge of his impending death, pleading alternately for two life-giving forces, for his mother and for air. I haven't witnessed the precise moment where he passes from living to dead, the last few dregs of life gurgling out of him, squeezed out beneath the heft of someone else's knee. Mostly this is because I already made that mistake a few months earlier with a Maud Arbery. Shocked by what I'd read about his murder, but unable to wrap my head around the idea that such an egregiously violent act had somehow gone unpunished, I felt compelled to see it with my own eyes, even in my guilt at stripping this man of his last shred of dignity by gulping at the spectacle of his death. The video I found played itself on an endless loop, so I watched it again and again and again and again, committing every second to memory, trying to understand. His baggy white t-shirt and loose running shorts, the off-screen tussle over a shotgun, and the sharp pop of gunfire before Arbery emerges back into frame, loping languidly across the street. At first it looks like he is breaking into a jog, about to resume his run, the situation resolved. But then a red stain blooms across his t-shirt, and seconds later he collapses to the ground, limbs suddenly liquid. And then he's dead. I watched that sordid video enough times, can picture it so clearly in my mind's eye, even all these months later, that I knew I didn't want to go through the same thing with George Floyd. I don't want to accept that he's dead, and that he died the way he did, so I keep skipping over that part of his story, and the abject horror of those final 8 minutes and 46 seconds. I've watched other videos of him though, videos from when he was still alive. It feels trite to say it, but that's how I feel he deserves to be remembered. How I want to remember him. A short snippet of him rapping. For a while, Floyd was part of Houston's chopped and screwed music scene, performing under the name Big Floyd. Another video in which he is offering motivational life advice, hinting at his own past struggles and urging resilience in the face of adversity, announcing in his gloopy southern drawl, Man, I love the world. The stories that have since emerged about his life from family and friends and from his widowed fiance confirm that yes, George Floyd certainly did love the world, even if ultimately it didn't love him back. In the aftermath of his death came the truly unexpected, a prolonged and visceral, full-throated outpouring of rage, of global protests and riots and emotionally charged op-eds, demanding justice and prosecutions and change. The stuff that history books are made of, I thought, as I watched it all unfold. And in fact, I have never before been so keenly aware that I am watching history being written. Watching being the operative word here, because I was not in it. Not in the USA, the beating heart of the movement, nor out on the streets here in Britain, having decided that my responsibility not to risk passing the virus onto the loved ones I was isolating with outweighed my desire to protest. I experienced it all at a remove, filtered through the often opposing lenses of social and mass media, though even from that vantage point there was still plenty to see. One of the main points that you make in the essay is that white people are very willing to engage with so-called allyship when it won't hurt them, for instance on social media and the kind of volume of the noise in the in the wake of George Floyd's murder was a lot of that was happening on social media and multiplying itself Um, and you talk about how real allyship actually involves giving things up and white people giving things up and you question whether that will ever happen um there's a quote that really stood out to to both me and Carrie black people cannot ourselves abolish whiteness white people will need to relinquish it which is an incredibly important message for white people to hear and I I wondered you know what do you think that relinquishment will actually involve that's a really good question and something that I thought about outlining in the essay and then decided not to because to an extent I wanted that to come from white people and to kind of for them to kind of take the lead on that but I think realistically you know I kind of give a couple of examples in the essay it's about situations where a white person has an advantage or gets an advantage or gets an opportunity and they and they know I think you must know or sense that this is because of your whiteness or because of the advantages that your skin colour has afforded you. So if you take something as simple as the ethnicity pay gap, um, and, and we all know that that exists, and you know there are sort of statistics as to how much a white 
person, whether you're a man or a woman or working in this sector or, you know, freelance or part-time, whatever, white people get paid more than black people and than most people of colour. And I just kind of think if you know that and if you rationally and conceptually accept that, then what are you doing with that excess money? Because that money is the money that you get because of your skin colour. It's nothing else. And I think maybe it's painful or difficult for white people to accept that on an individual basis, but it's the truth. And so I'm. my question then is, is, is what are you going to do with that excess money? And I, I think that in terms of talking about what it requires to kind of turn down whiteness, it's about kind of surrendering those race, racialized privileges that I talk about in the essay. But generally my mind kind of alights on certainly the concept of reparations because I say concept because they're not happening at a structural or political level. Um, and I, I don't know if they ever will. Um, but if that's not possible, on a wider level than than how are white people going to do that on an individual level in their day-to-day lives i think a lot of the actions that people have that white people um have alighted on as being allyship are things that are actually convenient and, and quite easy and maybe even make them feel good and you know i i just kind of want white people to start thinking about allyship less as oh what can i do for black people and, and framing it as this kind of charitable act and, and more as well, how am I going to change my own life? How am I going to sacrifice these privileges that I get on account of my skin color? That word allyship is so important in this essay. And it's a word that has been being bandied around for a while, but really, I think, was discussed in the wake of George Floyd's murder, as you say. You're very pessimistic about what is possible for white people in terms of their allyship. And as you've just said, you know, it's a lot of what people think of as allyship is kind of ways of people morally absolving themselves from actually doing anything. Um, Mm -hmm. I loved your discussion of the idea of privilege and how checking privilege has kind of become a moral get out clause, which allows white people to do all manner of things as long as they acknowledge the privileges they have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was such an interesting point that you made. Sure. But I just wanted to say really quickly, because, I mean, you said that I'm pessimistic and, and one or two people have kind of commented that the essay is quite cynical. And I just feel the need to push back on that slightly and, and to say that it's I see it more as being myself as being more of a realist. So this essay is based on my observations of, you know, 30 years of observations or, you know, however long I've been a kind of like sort of conscious adult of observations of the world around me. So, I I mean, I was very much expecting people um, and people, you know, of all races to say, gosh, this is such a cynical view of the world. And my response to that has always been, okay, but look around you because nothing I'm saying is, is untrue. Nothing, you know, it's kind of being borne out by, um, by people's actual behavior. But to, to answer your question about um, the sort of checking of privilege. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that has actually been on my mind for a long time because I've been thinking about privilege and class, especially as I work on my other book, um, We Need to Talk About Money. And that kind of discomfort with how just acknowledging your privilege, and it's not just white people, I think people with any kind of form of privilege, um, and it's not just about race, it's often about class or gender, but there is now this thing, and I think the cultural critic Amanda Hess has also written about it. She calls it the obligatory paragraph, where people just say, oh, I know that as a white cis XYZ woman, you know, I have all these advantages, but, and then they go on to say or do the same thing. And I think there is a kind of understanding, like a sort of top level understanding that privilege, you know, is not necessarily a good thing and it's something that needs to be acknowledged, but that is where the understanding ends. So like, I was really struck by Kim Kardashian's uh, a big island 40th birthday <laughs> getaway. Oh, That's man, just yeah. the most insane thing to me. Um, same, and the same thing to everyone. And, you know, when she emerged onto Twitter with this like long thread and even she has kind of caught on, I can't remember her exact wording, but she had essentially said something oh, I know that I'm so blessed to be able to do this and to be able to kind of have this ridiculous 
party and I was like even you know even she has gotten the message that just blithe privilege is no longer cool but without actually doing anything to mitigate it and I I think I just wanted to acknowledge that because I felt like that was really at play with white people's responses and and generally how they kind of treat race there was just there was just an acknowledgement of their whiteness and then that's as far as they engage with the issue of privilege and, and how their whiteness affords them certain advantages and disadvantages certain people and so to me I just find that really sort of like intellectually lazy um and also morally lazy as well true allyship will fundamentally change the shape of your life of white people's life if you're doing it properly and I don't know if the same people who are who are saying that they're kind of committed to allyship really understand that or are prepared to do it and you know as you know in the essay I kind of draw a conclusion as to that and I'm very open to kind of being proven wrong like what I would love is to revisit this essay in 5, 10, 15, 30 years and be like wow that was incredibly cynical and I was proven wrong like I'm I have no sort of like qualms about that I don't particularly want to be right about the conclusion that I came to but it is something that I do I do just kind of believe based on what I've seen around me. I feel like we can't talk about this stuff without really focusing in on social media because it's where so much of the complications around ideas of allyship kind of calcify and crystallize because obviously social media is by its very nature performative. And so it's an uncomfortable space for these things to kind of meet. Um, and, it's and it doesn't lend powered. itself to nuance either. It's you well, know, exactly. in a space. You have 280 characters in a tweet or however many in an Instagram. It's and, and nobody is really going to bother. You know, there are some times where I decline to tweet or talk about things because I think social media is not the right forum for a subject that requires nuance. But especially back over the summer, social media was kind of our primary form of communication. Like, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we were globally kind of all either under lockdown or partial lockdown or trapped indoors or in some way constricted and that social media kind of became our way of communicating with the outside world and like the primary source of information for a lot of people I spent an enormous time on social media even before George Floyd was killed so I think it only made sense that that was where a lot of this information was um, disseminated but of course there is no room for nuance and as you said social media is inherently a performative um, medium and these platforms are often about personal branding and self-aggrandizement and it's just a really toxic mix I think when it comes to genuine activism not to say that it's you know all completely bad you know I I think social media can be a really vital way of spreading information you know I I, I had never heard of the Minnesota Bail Fund before this summer, and I only heard heard about that through social media and through Twitter. And I think they ended up raising like over $30 million as a result of the kind of virality of social media donations. And I think that is a positive thing. But I think where it goes wrong is that it often becomes really performative, as you, as you said, before I cut in. <laughs> No, but you're right. And also the fact that essentially, I feel like we're coming back to the point that you make again and again and again in the essay is just that people need to be thinking deeper and Mm -hmm. harder about all of this. Mm. And that, you know, you describe really clearly the discomfort of seeing people posting, particularly on Instagram, I think you're talking about images of, you know, black protesters and describing these images as beautiful and their poignant mm. moments of photography, but the fact that they're put over in this medium, which is also powered by the engine of capitalism, right? Like Instagram, mm. Twitter, these are these are complicated tools because they are also about monetization. So you find yourself in this place where there's a, a commodification of black pain, basically. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And I you think describe it's it brilliantly. Fetishistic? Is that a, a, a right Yeah, fetishistic, word? exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as you say, that it's a place that ideas can pass between people very rapidly. I mean, I wonder, do you feel like there's a distinction to be made between, for example, Twitter and Instagram as a space for activism? Uh, possibly. I think, obviously, Instagram is... 
I think just more of a commercial platform, isn't it? These days, like it is really about. It, it, yeah, I think that's how it works. And you know, you have influence. You know, you don't really have Twitter influencers in the same way. You have people with large Twitter followings, but I don't think you see people monetizing their Twitter followings in quite the same straightforward way that that happens on Instagram. And you know, it's such a visual. It's obviously such a visual platform. Um, I don't feel like it encourages. It doesn't encourage thought because I saw so many times where somebody would post, you know, people would post like a black square with like a black heart emoji underneath or like just like a picture with like no caption underneath. And that they didn't have to come up with any words to support those images. And in many cases, I'm not sure whether they had anything meaningful meaningful to say. Now, on Twitter, you, you can't really do that because the whole point of Twitter really is to share words and, and to to write things. Um, so I think in some ways, Twitter was a better platform for it. But then also, you know, Twitter is rife with misinformation. It's rife with willful misreadings of people's intentions. Um, I don't think it's by any means, you know, it's definitely not sort of a perfect platform, but I think... It, I think maybe I, I found the efforts on there a little bit more genuine than on Instagram. And also things as well on Instagram is we're all trying to post beautiful photos because that's what gets mm. likes. Um, and so I and I really resented people, white people's especially, you know, attempts to beautify things and to find the most aesthetic image they could find to represent, you know, racism or anti-blackness or black people you know nobody was really posting ugly images they were still you know aesthetically pleasing images and so the idea for me that people were then weighing up what to post based on what might perform best that also just really rankled with me so yeah I think Instagram was a tough tough place to be at that time yeah and I can also see how that almost makes it seem like anti-racism is a kind of trend, you yeah. know, something that everyone felt that they had to engage with. And, and I mean, it is kind of trend. present. I mean, let's be honest, that, <laughs> that's what it's become, you know. I've, and then books have been commissioned. And whilst I don't feel like my essay falls into that category, I'm sure it will end up in many an anti-racism reading list. And I'm, I'm sure for people who haven't necessarily read the content, they will assume it's a certain type of book, you know, there are people, there are sort of like anti-racism influencers now. And it has, you know, I kind of made a quip during all of this. Um, I was like, I feel like anti-racism is getting the girl boss treatment. You know, like <laughs> it's what happened with feminism and it was just made so commodified and so sexy and so toothless as well. And, and that's why I felt a real desire to be just incredibly blunt with my essay because I was like, I don't want anyone to, to mistake my intentions. The thing that really bothered me and the thing that I kept reminding people of during that period and the thing that I come back to in the essay a lot and, and the reason I start out with, I guess for me, what felt like quite graphic descriptions of these, these murders is that I wanted people to remember that what happened this summer, the protests and the riots and the social media that happened because a man was killed and specifically because someone kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he couldn't breathe. I feel like a lot of people forgot that and I didn't want people to forget that. And so it's, it's really, that's really dark. And I think people are trying to find ways to package these conversations up so they're not as depressing or threatening. So they're more uplifting, you know, I was doing like prep for an interview the other day and, and people somebody asked me to like provide a message of hope or something or like what can we do next and I, I think the look on my face just said it all I was like that's not what I'm here to do I'm just being honest and I don't, I don't want to kind of sugarcoat it to make anyone feel better about themselves. And actually that gets into the question of who this essay is for mm. and you you talk in the essay about process of thinking about who you're writing it for and um calling it whites and 
what that might signal and what you actually mean to do with it. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. You very explicitly state this really isn't an essay for white people. Mm, yeah. So that was kind of the big dilemma that I had, you know, as I kind of sat down to write it. And that's kind of what I had to work out through kind of conversations with my editor and so on. Because whereas I think a lot of the kind of anti-racist I don't know what to call them, allyship kind of handbooks, whereas a lot of them are written kind of quite explicitly for white people and to kind of service them. I I knew that I wanted my essay to be as much for black people as I wanted it to be for white people. And in terms of the white kind of readership, I knew that white people would be reading it. I mean, the book is called Whites and I, I, I knew that this would be in certain spaces, essentially. And so I definitely did write it with a view to that audience and with a view to how it be received by white people. But it wasn't for white people. I essentially just had to cater to two different audiences. And I ended up realising that I just want people, you know, black and white people to take different things out of it. So with black people, I wanted them to feel very much vindicated and like somebody, you know, like I'd articulated how they'd been feeling. I think often for me, the best writing is writing that puts into words emotions or feelings or, you know, those unexamined, complicated feelings that you don't even yourself know how to articulate. And then, you know, that feeling when you read like a passage and you're like, oh, that's exactly what I've been trying to say. That's exactly how I've been feeling. That's really what I wanted it to be for Black people. And thankfully, um, with the responses I've had so far, that very much seems to have been the case which I feel really really gratified by and then for white people I just wanted them and I knew that they would feel uncomfortable and I wanted them to self-examine because the things that I have written in this essay are the sorts of conversations that I have with my black friends in private and via whatsapps and I know a couple of them have said to me like wow you really went there with this and I just thought well who are we protecting and whose feelings are we mollycoddling by not saying these things out loud and I guess you know the benefit of writing in an essay as opposed to having a one-on-one conversation with it with someone is that it's a bit more generalized um so no individual one white person is being on being put on the spot because all white people are being put on the spot but in terms of you know the whites that I refer to in the title this essay isn't intended for or I imagine going to be read by the kind of really obvious like BNP kind of St George flag kind of waving like racist stereotype it is very much for well-meaning and and progressive liberals who mean well but you know nevertheless they present a sort of a distinct set of challenges for black people yeah I I definitely had to as I kind of you know I, I talk about that in the kind of tiny little introduction to the essay the thought process I had around who this essay was for. And it's interesting because I essentially kind of emailed that to my editor and she was just like, well, why don't you put it in the essay? And then it was, oh yeah, I can actually just, I think the, the, the beauty of the form of an essay is that you can be a bit more meditative and talk about your process to, to getting places. And I think an essay allows for, me to talk about how I approach the essay, which I don't necessarily know that all forms of writing do. So I, I just I just put it in the essay. It's also at the top of the interview, you mentioned that you always knew that this would be an essay um, and also that you're currently working on another longer book, your part mm. memoir, part cultural commentary. Mm. We need to talk about money. And I wonder, did you find yourself writing in a different style for this essay? than the longer book just knowing that it would be contained in this way like yeah the totally. style liberating for you totally yeah it actually it actually really um I think they are quite stylistically different um especially because the, the memoir and cultural commentary it's a bit it's a bit lighter um obviously topic wise and and it's also a bit more kind of researched and you know there's cultural commentary but there's also data which I don't want to make it sound boring but there is and you know just kind of it's kind of a bit more of a kind of socio-political look at the world um whereas I felt very I felt able to be slightly self-indulgent with my writing style with this essay which maybe sounds like an odd thing to say but 
I felt like, again, essays as a form are, there, there are good essays and bad essays, but I think they're really what you make of them. So I just felt quite free to, I guess, try and make it a little bit more lyrical. I don't know if that sounds a bit self-aggrandizing, but to Not really all, no. think about yeah. the kind of flow. And, and it was so short, it's so short as well that I was able to go over every sentence and every word in a way that I just don't think I'm going to be able to do with with the memoir that I'm working on. And And also it was very deliberately short you know there was a lot more stuff that I thought I could have said and but I ended up cutting stuff and I just wanted it to be as short as possible and as concise as possible because I felt like that way things would land more and people would remember it more I'm quite I I just like cutting I like editing I like things to be as concise as possible and sometimes that will still mean that something is quite long if you have a lot to say but this very much felt like my kind of final word on the subject I and I knew it was going to be an essay because I also, this, you know, this all happened quite quickly, which I'm quite grateful for, from actually sitting down to write it to sort of, it was like a month or two. It was really, 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 really quick, including editing and stuff. And I think in a way that allowed me to not overthink things. And also I, I very much knew what I wanted to say. I think that's the result of having been mulling this topic over for years and years and years. I was really surprised actually how quickly it came. Like I've never written anything that quickly or felt like it came that easily. Like I wrote the kind of bulk of it in 10 days and then obviously edited it and I planned and researched it before, but I actually just sat down and write it from start to finish in 10 days, which is just like, (laughs) I'm a very slow writer um, usually. But I think with this, because I just, not that I didn't care how it was received, because I obviously do, but I didn't feel a responsibility to anyone but myself. And I think that is a very freeing way to write. Yeah. Yeah. I love this idea of the flexibility of the essay form, which I hadn't really thought about. But as you say, there's there's actually so much more you can do with it because mm. it's so open in some ways as, mm. as a medium. Yeah, um, definitely. And I... You know, I've also been reading, I think I do kind of gravitate to essays in terms of stuff I like to read as well. I, I, yeah, I just think it's it's a lot less formal. I don't think it's for everyone. I think I know people who really are not a fan of the essay and it can be a slightly more like, I think like navel gazy form and like it really lends itself, but it also it really lends itself to kind of like the excavation of the inside of your mind. So I was able to insert like a layer of analysis about how I'd come to write this essay and how I was approaching it that I don't necessarily think would be appropriate for other forms of writing. It's certainly not appropriate for the memoir I'm writing. I think it has to be presented in a certain complete way because it's just, it makes for a different experience for the reader. Otega, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about the essay. Thank you. It's called Whites. It's a beautiful little book that you can buy. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is the political essay. In a time of immense political upheaval amidst the rise of fascism and the impending climate crisis, or the happening climate crisis, I think is the better way to put that, many of us of the literary persuasion are asking ourselves, what can writing really do? One form of writing that seems to be central to this question is the political essay, which promises to respond directly to our world in some way, and maybe even change the way we think and act. So Octavia, I wanted to start with a quote from Zadie Smith's recent essay collection, Intimations, which I'm going to recommend more fully later, spoiler. Um, So I won't say too much more about it, but in one of her essays, she writes... Even when artists write manifestos, they are hopefully aware that their exigent tone is, finally, borrowed, only echoing and mimicking the urgency of the guerrilla's demands or the activist's protests, rather than truly enacting it. The people sometimes demand change. They almost never demand art. Do you agree with her? Do you think that writing can enact change? Yes, I think writing can enact change. 
Yes. I do. I believe in it. I mean, okay, so here I'm going to pick it apart in a little fussy way, but like, of course, writing can enact change because writing is one of the ways that ideas are disseminated. And we know that the dissemination of ideas can enact change. So just the simple fact of words being committed to paper in one way or another definitely enacts change, whether that's in the form of the political pamphlet or someone writes down a speech that they then give or someone writes an essay or an article in a newspaper. Like we know that words can create change. The question of whether the kind of writing that considers itself art can create change is like a more nuanced way into this, I think. And I think yes, but I also think it's more complicated than that because I think a lot of a lot of writing that is very self-consciously about itself and about its form as well as about ideas is writing that's for a particular audience that probably is already sympathetic to whatever it's saying. And I think that's mm. one of the problems with the essay as a form. I think that it can be as much as it can be a really flexible and open-ended form. It can also be a very elitist and closed off form. And I think that's something it's important for us to talk about. And I think that's something that comes into play when you think about its potential to spread ideas, because really the dissemination of ideas means there has to be a way for an idea to cross a boundary into a community that hasn't had it before. And is writing that considers itself art capable of doing that? Maybe, hopefully. Poetry does it. Essay, you know what I mean? Like, But I think yeah, it's a, a yeah. nuanced question, really. No, it is a good question. And I, I guess the question is, who is considering it art as right. well? Exactly. I also, I do think she has a point, though, that I like to think of what I'm doing as fa facilitating writing in the world that might make a difference as probably more important than it is. I agree that writing disseminates ideas, but it is one step removed from action. And I think, you know, this is something that comes up in Otega's essay as well, that like writing something, I think we can sometimes mistake that for action when you need to go one step further than just understanding the ideas that, that a political essay, for instance, puts across. But I do think what political essays can do and what I think is exciting is putting together a new framework for how to look at the world. I am talking about my own client here, but when I think about that, I always think about Renietta Lodge, who, I mean, she wasn't coming up with new ideas, but what she does and why I'm no longer talking to white people about race is she makes a very careful, nuanced argument for the existence of structural racism in the UK, which I think changed a lot of people's minds about how our society works. And that is, I think, one of one of the real powers and strengths of the political essay. And, and that book is kind of a, a collection of essays, isn't it? Yeah. And also the genesis for that book was a blog post. So, mm. you know, which is an essay of a, of a certain kind, right? But like, again, the intention... Rennie's intention when she wrote that blog post wasn't to write a carefully, tightly structured political essay. She was expressing her feelings in the moment, wasn't she? And then from there came this phenomenon and she was able to turn her knowledge and intellect and experience onto this phenomenon and write this incredibly thoughtful, careful, structured series of essays that does do, yeah, it, it's definitely a book that has changed hearts and minds. Should we talk about what a what an effective political essay will do. To continue on that point, actually, I was really interested in Ortega's point about kind of diagnosing a problem rather, rather than solving it. And her essay, she didn't want her essay to be about what we need to do. She wanted her essay to be about what is. And I'm sure there are political essays that do different things, but I think that's kind of a useful thing to start with, isn't it? Definitely. I think an essay by its very nature has to be open-ended. And if it's not, you should question the writer's motive because it's not a thesis. You know, it's the essay is, in my view, it might have a number of different purposes. It could be education. It could be persuasion. It could be radicalization. It could just be a space for critical thinking, a way of exploring an idea and chucking it out there. I mean, I, I almost think of them 
maybe even a bit like a really dynamic lecture where you're having a series of ideas put forward to you and then the idea is you go and carry on from there and maybe the essay becomes a thesis and in a thesis you find evidence you back up your ideas you do the the longer work but I think the essay you know and as Brian Dillon said when we interviewed him all that time ago the 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 word essay comes from the French essay, which means to try. So I think it is an attempt, an attempt to diagnose something, as you say, or an attempt to observe something, or an attempt to think critically about something that's way, way bigger than the essay has the capacity to contain. But it's it's a way of offering a perspective on something. Um, and I also think it's important to to think of it as a a window into the mind of the writer. So you're very much getting a perspective from a particular person and their particular standpoint, right? Again, it's not trying to occupy the space of um, neutral journalistic uh, perspective, for example. So what do you think is useful about the form of the essay for political writing? I think because it comes from this unique perspective of the writer it offers a chance to straddle the political and the personal in a really brilliant way and I think that's something we've seen take hold in essay writing even more so than before in the last five to ten years and I feel like that's something that's really impacted by internet culture and blogs and everybody I don't know people are writing all the time at the moment aren't they like Twitter Instagram social media is encouraging everyone to express their own personal identity in writing in ways that maybe they weren't before because maybe not everyone was keeping a journal or there's a schism there I think Gia Tolentino's book of essays Trick Mirror really gets at that you know and Mm. like the way that we relate to ourselves as we package ourselves in words and images in these kind of social medias so I think that there's a way in which the essay, when in the hands of a skillful writer who knows how to kind of exploit that potential and that tension, um, it has this chance to maybe zoom in on a microcosm, a bit like Ortega does in her essay, the microcosm of very personal experience to then say something really nuanced about the much, much wider world. I think that's that's what I love when an essay does that. Mary Gateskill as well, she does that in Lost Cat. She's talking about minute personal experiences and saying vast things about the philosophy of love and the way that society structures our relationships and the way we're supposed to love one another. Mm. Um, When it comes to political though, I mean like expressly political writing, I think it's the fact that it's not a thesis. I think it's the fact that there is the freedom to be brief and there is the freedom to be passionate and there is the freedom to be incredibly direct without necessarily having to then get bogged down and backing it up. I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And I thought, I think that relates to Ortega's point about the flexibility of the form, that she could have a preamble at the beginning, just saying, this is why I wanted to write this essay. And that doesn't have to be at the beginning of an essay, but she could put it there. And and equally, you know, she didn't have to, as you say, solve a thesis or prove a thesis it's open. And that's really exciting. I also think we're in some ways living in the age of the personal essay, aren't we? And that's incredibly exciting. I think we both love reading personal essays. And, and again, as you say, I think it's kind of impossible, especially now to make a distinction between a personal essay and a political essay. The most personal essays always have an element of the political. And I haven't read many political essays in recent years that don't have some element of the personal, certainly. Some people would argue that the personal is political. Are you looking at me? (laughs) Anyway, I agree. I mean, and the essay does give you that that ability to to focus on the macro and the micro at the same time to to continuously be zooming in and out. And I was thinking about the case for reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which was in the Atlantic, which I, I think is another example of an essay that's really changed people's minds. That's totally changed the window of thought about reparations and what might be possible and what is owed. And it's an incredibly effective essay that is both about specific individuals, but also a much, much, much wider discussion of what reparations actually means and why Black people are owed them in America. I haven't read it, but he's such a talented writer, I can imagine. Yeah, and Orwell does the same thing in a lot of his essays, right? Mm -hmm. Shooting an Elephant, which is another essay that I read in school, which opened my eyes, really, 
to the power of this form. And of course, it's Orwell telling a story about having to shoot an elephant when he was a policeman in Burma, but it's really an essay about the evils of colonialism and, yeah. and that personal experience being opening his eyes, but at the same time, opening the reader's eyes to a totally corrupt system. Right. And actually, that everyone was complicit in. That's the thing, isn't yeah. it? And that's what an essay can do in terms of like a diagnosis. And thinking on that, I was remembering Rebecca Solnit's essay, Men Explain Things to Me, which coined mm. the term mansplaining. And it was this perfect it was this perfect description of her very specific experience that every woman I know, myself included, was like, I have had that experience too. And here it is, it's got a name. And that was that was what the essay did. It was this perfect moment of using the personal to explain the broadly political and to yeah. give us this way of now newly relating to this experience that we have. And in so doing, hopefully being able to change it. I mean, yeah. I love telling men when they're mansplaining to me. <laughs> One of my favorite activities. Although mansplaining as like a concept, as all of these things do, has passed out of its original meaning into something else. And like, anyway, um, yeah, I agree. And we're missing out so many great essayists. I mean, I kind of just want to read down this list of people. We have Hilton Alls, Roxane Gay, James Baldwin, Chia Tolentino, who you mentioned, Eula Bliss, Susan Sontag. I mean... There are so many great essayists, and I think you could class all of those essayists as political essayists, can't Definitely. you? Susan Sontag's essay on camp is one of the, my favorite essays of all time. And that's, again, a totally diagnostic essay. She's taking the concept of camp and she's taking, taking it apart, breaking it down, putting it back together. It's a brilliant piece of writing. Great. So shall we talk about our recommended political essays? Let's do it. Shall I start? Yes, what's yours? Just to be different. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do I usually start? No, I was teasing. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I didn't think I did. Oh, babes, no, it's me. I want to recommend Daddy Issues by Catherine Angel because I think it's a really, really great example of how the form of the essay can be used. It's very elegant, it's very tightly packed, and it picks at the whole in the discourse that in the wake of Me Too, no one was talking about fathers. And her essay steps up to examine the way that contemporary culture frames fathers and she probes these representations and she tries to get at the various daddy issues that the culture has and points out that if we're going to dismantle patriarchy, we have to dismantle the myth of the father too and that we're much less comfortable with the idea of doing that. We can other men when they're not our dads, but when they're our dads, what do we do? Um, but it also gives me the chance just to flag that Peninsula Press are publishing a brilliant series of exactly this kind of writing, including Mixed Race Superman by Will Harris, which is brilliant, and A Nazi Word for a Nazi Thing by So Mayer, which is at the top of my reading list now. Um, so check them out. But yeah, Daddy Issues is, is a beautiful example of the essay. That sounds great. What's yours? Mine is Jessamine Ward's essay on witness and repair, which was published in Vanity Fair this September. This is both just, I mean, in some ways, a completely wrenching personal essay about Ward losing her partner to COVID, but also a political commentary about the dehumanizing way that America treats Black people and her response to the protest. And it's so beautifully written. It's immensely powerful in its message about both the personal and the political. And I think it's a great example of, as we were talking about, how those two things can meet in an essay. But just, yeah, as a piece of writing, it's intensely good and I would just recommend reading it for that reason yeah I read it and it is mind-blowing really gets right to the heart of everything it does I am Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Otega Uagba to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. I'm going to recommend a really phenomenal book by Simone de Beauvoir called A Very Easy Death, which I've had on my shelf for a really long time, but I finally got to it after we spoke to Mary Gateskill on our last show, because I didn't want to leave that place of emotional rigor and candor that she creates in her writing and I was like oh I know that's <laughs> that's gonna continue that mood and it really is exactly what's on offer in this book the copy I have is translated by Patrick O'Brien and the style is as elegant and direct as you would expect from de Beauvoir and I think that 
here in the UK, culturally, we don't think enough about the end of life. And it's baffling to me because it's one of the few things we can absolutely count on. And it's something I think about a lot for various reasons. Um, And I found real solace in this book because it walks the reader through the intimate truths of how a family deals with illness, in this case, de Beauvoir's mother's cancer, and then ultimately her death. And like the best memoirists, she writes with this control and what comes across anyway as a very rigorous honesty about her feelings throughout the entire process. And in her refusal to lionize anyone, including herself and her own emotional relationship to her mother, she gives us this extraordinarily generous document of an experience that we're all going to have one way or another. And I guess uh, it, it, generosity here, I don't mean, it's not a, a like warmly written welcoming book in a lot of ways. It's not gentle, but in the way that she's so uncompromising about her feelings and so direct about the way that she relates to them and to her mother and to herself and to even her own concept of grief. She opens the door to the contradictions and the reality that we will all have occasionally ugly feelings in relation to death, as well as love and as well as compassion. And that rigor and that honesty is ultimately incredibly liberating and a real gift. And yeah, it's an extraordinary book. I would recommend it to anyone who is living alongside grief, but also anyone who just wants to open their mind a bit more to this process that we, yeah, that we all seem to deny so effectively, basically. It's so true. I've never read any Simone de Beauvoir. I'm embarrassed to say. Don't be embarrassed, but do 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 it. I think you will respond really well to her writing. I don't know Great. if you've heard, but she's uh, she's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Otego, what's your recommendation? So my recommendation is a novel that I actually read a few years ago, but has been on my mind um, for various reasons lately, uh, mostly because I lent my copy of it to someone and I can't, I don't know who, so I'm going to need to get another copy, but (laughs) it is America is Not the Heart by Elaine Casillo, which came out a few years ago. And it's just one of those novels that really stays with you um Elaine is such a and the interesting so it's about kind of family uh relationships and familial bonds and also unexpected love um and I would say that I'm generally not that interested in reading especially novels about whether that center on familial relationships like I would not describe that as as my sort of bad um I like reading about friendships and about sort of love affairs but I've always found family narratives a little bit boring um not so with this novel which is just incredibly tender and really beautifully crafted and intimate and raw you know the kind of gist of the plot centers on a protagonist who uh, emigrates from the Philippines to San Francisco I think the Bay Area in the 80s um, and it kind of talks about the first and second gen Filipino experience and their communities. And it was, first of all, just like an introduction into a completely different way of life and a different culture that I know very little about. Um, and I something I really liked was that Elaine didn't explain things in the book. I think often when you are a writer of colour um, and you're talking about a culture that is not kind of white Anglo-Saxon culture, there's often pressure on you to kind of explain or simplify things for readers when actually there was a lot in the book that I didn't understand and I just googled it and I thought wow (laughs) that wasn't that hard um -hmm. I really just kind of liked um her her choice to do that and I think it really strengthened the book because it it made me less aware of the strings and, and you know that and the interference that goes into writing a book and goes into putting a book out into the world it very much was this very complete world. And then Lane's prose is just really, really gorgeous. And the kind of peak of it for me was the fact that it made me cry, which I don't usually cry with books. I cry a lot with movies, but and I did read it quite intensely in like two days and it's quite a long book, so that's quite intense. And the last kind of few pages, the last 50 pages, I could see that the tears were coming. <laughs> I was trying very hard to resist I was like I was like no you're going to finish the book then you can have your big cry and I got to like maybe I had 10 pages left and then I was bawling and I had to take a break and then come back and read the last 10 pages which for me is just a sign of a really excellent book 
it's it's just it's just incredible and um I want more people to read it and I want her to write <laughs> what I really wanted to do is write another book so no pressure Elaine if you're listening I love that book I second I second that's a great word I just <laughs> I just mistakenly said it, but I love it. And I know what you mean about crying at the end. And I felt like that was a very emotional book, but all of the emotions felt really earned. Yeah. You know, there was nothing saccharine about it at all. Absolutely. And I loved that. Yeah. I remember when you recommended it, Carrie, and I thought at the time, I really want to read it. And then it slipped off my kind of, you know, what happens, you just lose track of the things. But listening to you describe it, I take I want it. Maybe it's a good one to read like over Christmas break. If it's I actually did read it over Christmas break that uh, three, I think it was three years ago that I got a copy of it. So it's very, I would recommend it as a Christmas read. There was maybe, I was sort of, you know, it's that thing where you've kind of shut down communications with the outside world for like a few days whilst you're with your family. And I was just kind of going from like the kitchen to like the sofa, just like reading this book and eating. And it was very intense. But yeah, I would recommend it as a Christmas read. Great. All right. It's on my it's on my Christmas list. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my recommendation is actually pretty on theme, and I think it sits really well next to whites in some ways. Otega, I'm going to recommend Intimations by Zadie Smith. Uh, Yeah which is a collection of six short essays published earlier this year, um, all the proceeds of which will go to charity. So you can feel good about buying a hard copy as well. These are very slim essays. Some of them even feel like fragments. They're not even really essays, but maybe that gets into what, how flexible the form can be. They were all written in the early days of the first lockdown from COVID-19. And I have to say, I have really shied away from writing that is in some way responding to the moment quote unquote that we're in right now I really don't I really didn't want to read about writers talking about what it's like to live through this period but I will read anything that Zadie Smith writes and especially if it's an essay I mean if she wrote an essay about a toilet I would read it immediately (laughs) so I picked this up and I really loved reading it I love that I could read it in the space of an evening and I thought the kind of fragmentary and almost unfinished quality of these little personal essays really worked in terms of the way that we're all feeling right now. It felt like she was thinking down the experience that I was having of the world in some ways, even though they were intensely personal. I mean, some of the writing was a little uneven, but I was just so happy to be in her brain for a little bit. I was underlining constantly, and I especially loved her essay about why she writes and what writing is, which I would recommend that anyone read if they pick up the collection. And I loved this line in it, which made me think of our recent conversation with Mary Gateskill, actually, and what love is and and how love functions in our lives. She says, love is not something to do, but something to be experienced and something to go through. That must be why it frightens so many of us and why we so often approach it indirectly. Um, So yeah, Intimations by Zadie Smith. It's it's really worth picking up. I really enjoyed that as well. Um, and I think my favourite essay in it that really kind of spoke to me was the essay called Suffering Like Mel Gibson, I think. And mm. there was this line or this section that jumped out at me, which I, like you, underlined at the time. I'm a big I'm a big underliner when it comes to books. Um, oh, yeah, me um, too. And she talks about suffering and how suffering isn't relative, how it's absolute and how privilege doesn't necessarily mitigate your feeling your experience of suffering and I thought it was just a really brilliant way of summing up something that I'd been feeling during the pandemic which is a real kind of rational consciousness and awareness that you know as people go I was fairly lucky in terms of how it was or wasn't affecting me but that I still found it really hard to navigate for my own reasons and you know, there was this kind of refrain that I occasionally was told by people, but also that I really kind of told myself, was like, oh, you should be grateful, you should be grateful. And I think it was just, I, I just found it quite validating to read her speak about it in that way. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that collection as well. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Otega Yuagba and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. 
Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. You just sounded like an airplane advert. I know. I, <laughs> I've gone completely. Can I do the next bit as well? Just in my in character. Yeah. We'll be back soon with our year in review show. Until then, she's Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright. And this is Literary Friction. <laughs>